You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania meets Des Moines, Iowa on this edition of Cornfield Theology. Hey everyone, Pastor Sean here, back at you with another edition of Cornfield Theology. And indeed, uh, rule is meeting urban, quite in a literal way, right? Yeah, very like, literally. Can you confirm to the listener, because I've been saying this, but I don't know if people believe me, there are cornfields literally feet away. All over. All we are over. surrounded by it. We are children of the corn. We are children of the corn. Is that a movie? Yes, it is. Okay, I caught that. This is good. <laughs> yeah. I'm horrible. Well, my name is Sean Powers. Like I said, pastor of Redemptional Church located in Des Moines Metro. And uh, this is my friend, Eric McIntyre. And uh, how you doing? You are from Philly. Yes, from Philadelphia. Born and raised. Born and raised. West Philadelphia. So we can sing a song here right now. Yeah, point. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's interesting. Like We were talking about it earlier because you preached for us at Redemptional Church. Did a great job. So thank, thank you, you for that. Um, served us so well. Uh, we have a lot in common. There's a lot of things we don't have in common. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of things we don't have in common is I grew up in Iowa, mm-hmm. middle of America. I call it God's country. Right. Uh, you're in the city of brotherly love, which isn't showing much love to one another, but we'll get into that. Yeah, it's a different kind of country. Different kind of country. Uh, I grew up, you know, in a different context, different culture. Mm-hmm. And you grew up literally urban in the city. That's right. In West City. And that's informed how you think about the topic we're going to get into today. That's really a lot of people have been talking about for the last year and a half. Well, it's longer than that, but it's really ramped up in 2020. Mm -hmm. And that's what do we make of um, what's the wokeism that's going on, biblical justice. And what do we do with really important issues that that, um, impact everyday life? Right. Like we talked about just a second ago, the violence in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And how do we begin to what's the framework in which we can really begin to understand the problem and then more significantly the solution. Right. So before we get into that, can you just give a, a just a bio who you are? We said, already said who you are, where you're from, but how were you raised? And, um, we're obviously brothers in Christ. So mm-hmm. something happened along the way. Can you just kind of give us a summation of where you were and where you're at today? Absolutely. So I'm from West Philadelphia. Uh, like we joked about in church, uh, Will Smith's neighborhood, but I never met Will Smith. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm from 60th street. Uh, if you're from Philly, they call it the O, um, raised there, mom kind of broken home grandparents, you know, my mom had me when she was 16. So my grandmother did the raising. My mom just kind of did a lot of the growing up over the time. Uh, you know, cousins, siblings, my father was in the Marine Corps for, uh, most of my early years. So just dealing with a lot of, you know, this is the 80s. So we were dealing with going from the heroin era to the crack cocaine era. Okay. Um, during that time where you go from, you have neighbors who are all working and everybody has property and real estate to people are trying to sell their kids and they're selling their sofa or their VCR so they can get crack cocaine. And that feels okay. like almost overnight, you know, in, right. the, in the mid 80s. Um, so we got to that place where, you know, for a while, even my mom had jumped out and was doing all kinds of things, selling drugs, whatnot. Um, and you just experienced that just kind of, you know, um, degrading of society around you, falling apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and over time, you know, you fast forward as I'm a teenager, 
um, it's inescapable. You know, I think a lot of people, when they hear someone grew up in the hood and they were exposed to violence and gangs, they automatically assume we're well, a drug dealer, we're a thug. There's just a lot of people who are trying to hustle because we're broke. Yeah, right. You know, how do you survive? Um, you got to pay your bills, want to get rich, you know. Exactly. And so who do you look to? You don't have fathers in your home. You look to the men in the community that were the big deal. They have Cadillacs. They have money. They smell good. They have jewelry. And so you want to be like them in some sense. Yeah. So even your, your sense of success, even if it's not taking you to the streets, even, even if you would do it legally, you still want to be them. Right. And there's always that idea that if you want to come out here and you want to step off the porch, you can come be a part of this. Um, and so I was just enamored with that kind of lifestyle. And, uh, you know, my grandmother, she was a numbers runner. My mom was doing a lot, legally and illegally, just trying to make ends meet. Yeah. I mean, at one point, we, we got to the point where we were running an extension court from our neighbor's house. That's how we had electric. Oh, wow. Um, you know, seasons where we would boil the hot water, put yeah. it in a tub, and everybody took baths after one another. Yeah, sure. You know, and this is just the 80s going into the 90s. And, um, you know, eventually as a teenager, just ran into a lot of trouble um, in the streets, as I'm in high school, coming of age. And um, it was interesting, there was a group called Teen Haven um, that's still around in Philadelphia, and a guy named John Schley. Teen Haven's a ministry. Teen Haven's a ministry, yeah, outreach, Christian ministry, outreach. Christian ministry that was in North Philly, and they just reach youth, at-risk youth, whatever, anybody in Philadelphia that they could reach. Um, they would have Monday night Bible studies in Southwest Philly, but then every month they had a camp that they would take kids to outside of the city. Okay. So they would take you to the cornfield. You know, yeah. literally yeah, you're yeah. going to like farm country. And, uh, and everyone's like, what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're taking you like two or three hours outside of Philly. And, and it was amazing because you could be somewhere where you're outside of that environment. You're seeing different people. You're experiencing new people. And um, I heard the gospel preached a couple weekends and... You know, just to back up briefly, I grew up in a household that was a mixture of Catholicism and Santeria. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. black magic, spells, oh, um, spell books. Yeah. Blending. Whole lot. Yeah. Blending and, religion. you know, the saints and praying to Mary and spell books and everything. Okay. All together. Um, and so, you know, Seen Haven exposed me to the gospel. That's where I became a Christian at during a time where um, it was just really bad. A lot of violence going on. And I really... I had no belief that I was going to make it to 18 years old. Wow. I, I knew um, it was going to catch up to me and I would be dead before I was 18. And it was through the preaching of the gospel outside of the church, but at Teen Haven that, that gave me hope, but it gave me identity. And that was the one thing I think even a lot of our conversations about race right. that grabbed me, that saved me was not just that Jesus saved me from hell, but I'm a saint. You know, yeah, yeah. and especially when you're in a cult or you're dealing with Santeria, you hear about saints and so forth. Oh, yeah, I grew up Catholic, and so it's like those exactly. are the saints, and I'm exactly just we're that. just the runner ups. <laughs> yeah, we're in exactly. a minor league, and <laughs> that's not and, what scripture says, right? <laughs> and when somebody breaks that down for you, you realize um, this is all of those um, that are elect are the saints, and it blew my mind, yeah, um, yeah. you know, that. And so, my spiritual journey kind of came in three phases it was, you know, getting saved and taking with me that identity. Um, that I had to still struggle through because I was very self-righteous towards the church. You know, it's yeah. like, I've got Jesus and I'm out here, but I don't need community. And there was a lot to pay for that. Um, and then my church experience, you know, coming into a church in North Philly where, um, you know, they're, they're going through books of the Bible and studying. I remember there was a study on First Corinthians that just literally changed my life mm-hmm. and the idea of understanding the gospel and morality. That was like the second phase. And then finally... You know, probably about 10 years into that, I learned about church planting, Yeah, right. which 
had, I had been in a traditional black church at least seven or eight years before I actually heard of church planting. And before somebody ever explained, this is a biblical idea. Because wow, yeah. before that, you know, in the black church, there was church splits. Right. That, and then that's it just happened to play. Exactly. <laughs> the, you know, the pastor gets on your nerves. You get tired of not being promoted. And then you go and start a church. And I learned um, a lot from Acts 29 folks, Eric Mason, you know, in North Philly. And it blew my mind. And I knew. You know, whatever God had been preparing me for in some way was connected to church planning, was connected to um, urban ministry and just sending and that dynamic of sending out churches that plant churches. That's been that's been my journey and and definitely a big part of my passion. Yeah, we're going to do another podcast specifically on church planning. Stay tuned. So stay tuned to that one. Now, so it's a little bit, how how did you come to a reformed perspective in terms of your theology? The Mm -hmm. Lord radically saved you every every. Salvation is radical, right? It's a miracle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you've come into a place where you see things from a, what we say, reform soteriology, the very least Calvinistic. Yeah. And, and for me, it's interesting because this, I was introduced to reform theology during the era of the young, restless, and reform. Okay. And so for years, um, for me, Christianity was whatever was on 560 AM in Philly, which is, you know, Adrian Rogers, Family Life Today, James Dobson, okay, and then TBN at night, yeah, and right. whatever's on there. Right. And so I had my little NIV study Bible, and the stuff I'm writing in there, like the locusts are actually Apache helicopters, and all this <laughs> stuff that I've got written in my Bible, and I'm messing it all up, yeah. but I'm loving it. And then um, had some serious issues happen in my life, and um, found myself going to counseling firstly at a place called CCEF. Yep. in Glenside, PA. And yeah. we talked about a lot of people that are there, Ed Welsh, um, yeah. Todd Stride, David Paulson. Yeah. And so I was going to counseling and there was this lady in my church um, who was running a homeless outreach. And one day she tells me, there's a biography you really need to check out. This is going to encourage you. Um, and it is John Piper doing the biography of Charles Spurgeon. Oh yeah. And I listened to it. Yeah. And then I listened to it again. And I remember I went to someone in my church and I said, uh, you know, he's talking about this thing called Christian hedonism. Yeah. And I remember she said to me, it's completely unbiblical. Stay away from John Piper. Wow. And I'm like, okay. And I go listen to everything John <laughs> Piper. And it's leading me to Spurgeon. And I'm reading Spurgeon sermons. And I would literally print out Jonathan Edwards and Spurgeon sermons and just highlight and write yeah, on them. Right. And I struggled because this idea of election was very hard for me for years. But at the same time, this idea of a sovereign God who all things have to pass through his uh, grasp was counseling me and growing me at the same time as I was struggling with this idea of the elect. And it took years to get there, but it was like, this is truth. I want this and I I want to build my life on this, you know, reformed foundation. So it was that. And then, you know, years later, that's when I come across at least three years after Matt Chandler and Mark Driscoll. All That was way after. In the beginning, it's, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, The Holiness of God, first book that blew my life. I got The Holiness of God, read it through, and then got the DVD series and went through. And so I would just go through the Bible multiple times per year. I remember one point I read through the whole Bible twice in one year because I really wanted to understand how all this fits together. And then I get to Sinclair Ferguson when he talks about how to study the Old Testament. And now my mind is blown because I'm seeing the garden and I'm seeing Adam and Eve and David and Goliath and Samson and Delilah and all these stories. And I'm seeing Christ there. Yes. And that was a wrap. 
Yeah, I, 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 uh, I knew I wanted to preach that. It's it was Spurgeon say, as every road leads to London, so does every text from Scripture. Yes, lead to the gospel, lead yep. to Christ. Now, I can't remember exact phraseology, but something. Yeah, like that. I know yeah. exactly the quote you're talking about. Yeah. So I mean, it's yeah. the same idea. All of a sudden, you're just reading, and it's like, whoa. I you know, going back to the uh, David and Goliath. I'm not David. Exactly. <laughs> How freeing it was. Oh, yeah. Who cares about the stones? Yeah, yeah. Leave like. the stones alone. You're missing the point. <laughs> right. Exactly. This is a foreshadowing of a, of a greater king. You know. Yes. Who will rule? Who ha- who is ruling? So. Yep. So, thanks for the biography, and I think that helps you know, the folks who listen to this podcast to know who you are, and then uh, they can do the dark web stuff and look for you there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> another podcast. Yeah, another podcast. Um, We've spent a lot of time in the last year talking about race, talking about a biblical view of justice. You know, if we're if we're concerned with like when we'll get into these categories here in a moment with mm. you know, critical race theory and wokeism, what is the solution? Right. We spent a ton of time on that. So I want to mm. think through um, and I think I want to be charitable and gracious and yeah. I know, knowing you. And, you know, me, we have opinions on these things, but mm. also realize we're going to keep things at kind of at the ideas level. Right. There's a lot of confusion going on about the difference between biblical justice and social justice. Yeah. And um, how, how would you begin to counsel someone who says to you, say, hey, you know, how do I think through these two particular categories? Beginning with social justice. Mm-hmm. What is it? What do I do with that? Yeah. The, these terms need defining so often. Correct. And I think if I'm sitting with anyone, I'm going to ask them to define for what me. What do you mean by social what justice? What they mean because... Um, and especially within the black community for so long, we did not talk about justice um, because there's no justice without social, you know, right? Like uh, I think it's if Vody or someone says, if you're on an island by yourself, you can't do justice to anybody, right? <laughs> All justice is social. Um, but, you know, biblically, we have to go to the idea of understanding what shalom is and what God's mission is in humanity. Whereas when we talk about social justice, often we're talking, we're starting with the problem. Right. And then we're getting to inferred solutions that you apply to the problem. Whereas biblically, we need to start with what was God's design, yep. what has fallen or broken and how does God restore it? And so it's two different dichotomies or a dichotomy that people are following. And so I'm going to talk to that person and get an understanding of what's the breach and how do we define even that? Because some things may seem like sin that are not and some things seem like facts that are not. Yeah. So let me let me get your take on this because this is mm-hmm. this is where I've landed in terms of terminology. Mm-hmm. Um, I've rejected the the idea of social justice mm-hmm. and say if you're a Christian, we need to be thinking about biblical justice that has certainly has social implications and social right. elements. Right. And part of it is because social justice as a term has just simply been hijacked. Yeah, it to has mean, to mean something that is not biblical. Yeah, in terms especially in terms of its application. And I think what you said is really important. You're not starting from the beginning. You know, we're not talking about mm-hmm. what it means to say be an image bearer of God. Right. We're just looking for solutions, which might be well intended. Exactly. But without that foundation, you could do a lot of damage. A little bit of what you preached yeah, at our exactly. church this morning. You will do damage. Yeah. So we have to get foundations right. Exactly. So as you've processed 2020 and getting into 2021, um, we obviously had uh, BLM, mm-hmm. uh, Black Lives Matter. We've had good protesting, but also we had rioting with January 6th um, mm-hmm. and what happened at the Capitol Hill. How would you help someone process all that violence? Yeah. There's a couple ways that I think, depending on who the person is, honestly. Um, they, you know, we were talking about young, restless, and reform. I think now we see the emergence of the you know, young, angry, and black. Um, and what I'm going to try to process is the 
history of of racism and issues like that in society versus where things are now because there is a root that we can deal with that we can call out um but we need to look at how things have changed one of the issues we saw last year is that there is this brewing anger that doesn't necessarily in my opinion come from recent events as much as generational anger and victimhood that meets with real valid justice issues and yeah. it blows up. Yeah. Um, and, and, and here's a good way you see it. We all saw what happened with George Floyd. We were all very outraged or should be. Most of us should. I won't say we all. Um, but to a large degree, we still haven't got to the place where we could say, I'm very angry at what happened with Derek Chauvin, but I'm not going to celebrate George Floyd as a martyr. Right. And so for some reason, and I know this is very controversial, um, in the black community... Whoa, 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 we don't do controversy in this podcast. There you go. I can't help it. That's what I'm here for. All right, go for it. Um, we, in the black community, we will celebrate um, our worst, and I'm not inferring that George Floyd is our worst, but we will celebrate our worst if they fit a narrative. Correct. Um, we will celebrate Ben Carson... Because of his gifts and his book and his movie, but then when he becomes a Republican, we're going to put him down. He becomes a demon, and yet um, George Floyd can be a criminal. He can mistreat his family. Whatever you know, I don't want to go into his record, but we'll celebrate him. And so we lost the ability to say here's wrong, but he's not right. Um, yeah. And because there is this national psyche, I think in the African-American community being pushed on it by many of the powers that be that says you need to see yourself, even if you're a black Christian, based on um, the black predicament in America and not any other identity. I think it's identity that's the foundation of the issue, which is why um, this happens to George Floyd. And what do we do? We tear down our own communities. So the anger is so misdirected. We wouldn't even say, and I'm not endorsing it, but we won't even say, I'm going to tear down. I'm going to storm City Hall. Like like on January 6th, you didn't see people other than Portland storming City Hall, storming precincts. It was more so, I'm going to tear down my supermarket. I'm going to tear down the the businesses that people who look like me and live near me have worked their whole lives to build. Yeah. And I'm not going to think about it. So there is an irrational element to uh, much of black identity and the political movement where it has to be a struggle. Yeah, There's this yeah. ingrained sense of um, here is our class and we need to be liberated. And we're frustrated because we're not. Therefore, we're going to lash out. This is where nar- narratives matter. Yes. And and everything's trying to fit into a particular narrative. And it's on, let's use political language here. It happens on a Republican side. It happens on a Democratic side. Mm-hmm. You know, we're at, the, at the time of this recording, the tragic events in Af- Afghanistan took place and narratives are being spun out on both yeah. sides. Mm-hmm. So we, I think it would be better for us as Christians to, to keep that in mind when we see violence throughout the world. Right. Whether it's in Afghanistan or mm-hmm. in the streets of Philly or yep. in Des Moines here. And realize this is going to get spun. Yeah, it's going to get spun. And the question becomes: This is what this is what it is hard. Mm-hmm. How do we get to the truth? Right. Exactly. How do we process truth? Yeah. Because you have certain movements that are saying you can't even talk about what's facts or what's statistically true. Right. And so the problem there here here's where the issue comes in. And and you might have heard people talk about this, but this was something I mentioned a lot last year. Um, whether you're a Christian, if you're just a rational, caring human. There was the situation with Tony Tempa a few years ago mm. in which um, he died the exact same way as George Floyd. I think George Floyd, they were on his neck for eight minutes and some time. Tony Tempa was about 13 minutes. Um, but because Tony Tempa's white, it did not become part of the national narrative. Yeah. 
But I make the point that if we had been outraged when it happened to Tony Tempa in 2016, maybe we could have prevented George Floyd. Yeah. But because we only care, and by this I'm charging the national media, Hollywood, uh, CNN, if you live to agitate and, and manipulate black identity, then what happens is you do great damage to blacks because you're saying we don't care about justice. So, so if we're going to talk about justice, we have to talk about justice for all people because we're all made in God's image. Mm. And because that's not happening now, it's it's, it's as soon as I see something, it's automatically, um, there was a popular pastor who tweeted, um, cops only kill black men on days that end in Y. Well, this is inflammatory. You don't have yeah, much to right. go by. Right. If you look at the statistics, there's a lot of white men being killed as well. Right. So maybe we do have a police issue that's bigger than cops killing black men. Maybe it's just a issue with cops, period, how they're trained or sure. how they're over, overworked or stressed. But we can't talk about that honestly. And we can't step back and say what should be done in society. Yeah. Instead, we're going to do things like we're going to defund police and then eventually try to bring them back because we need them. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and because these are things that God has ordained. Yeah. And so exactly. that's the the mess that we're painting. Um, and I think black people are being brought into the middle of it as a pawn on a political chessboard um, that so is destroying communities. Would you would you agree with this statement that race has been weaponized? Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's something that has gone through my head. And um and, the, and that's where we have to see the narratives that are being spun and the narratives that are being drawn out for us. Yeah. Uh, because there's a better way to think about this. And there's, and there's mm -hmm. other solutions to these really important problems. Yeah. So right now, what's popular, and I think, I think it's popular because it's been around for a while. And in 2020, it just became so clear what was going on. We have things like critical race theory coming from yeah. critical theory. There's a whole backstory to it. We won't get into it. But the whole idea that there's anti-racism, white privilege, mm -hmm. uh, whiteness, cancel culture, standpoint epistemology. Um, all, all stemming from this idea that there's an oppressor who is oppressing. So yeah. this is where intersectionality comes in. And we've talked about this in other podcasts for Corinth Field Theology. So we won't get into all the terms. You can just go look at the other um, podcast on why, we're not, why I'm not woke. If that's not the solution, what is? For the it, race issue. Yeah, exactly. In terms of how we think well about race and justice. Like, mm. where do we begin to understand the better way forward. Because again, I, we can we can talk about why we don't like these things like critical race theory and all the, the doctrines of woke wokeism. Mm -hmm. But we if we don't have a solution to offer, then really we don't have much to talk about. We're just right. we're just we're just being loud and banging a pan, you know, against something. We're just rattling a cage. Yeah, and I think we have to look at where we're starting with the solution. So for example, it's different if we talk about the church versus if we're talking about Black families, black men, you know, law, um, because I think where we go wrong, especially if you're evangelical or if you're politically conservative, um, and many times there's a political commentator I like that says that the leftists have the party of the emotionally reckless and the um, right wing is the party of the dangerously stupid. And so either ones can go <laughs> tragically wrong because some, sometimes we struggle with just saying, here's what happened in the beginning that was wrong. Yeah. Critical race theory, the roots of it, did apply in the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. um, and many times we say, well, this person's just Marxist and so forth and so on. But when we enter that dialogue, we need to be able to say it did apply at this point in time. Yeah. Um, it silences the critics, but it also has a valid starting point, at least in the dialogue, in saying, let's look at how things have changed and where things are and who's pulling the strings, if you will. Um, and so we, we, we look at families, we look at disparities. Um, if you want to get political, and again, I'm not endorsing either side, 
but we look at the issues in our cities. There are certain issues that are occurring in most Democrat-led cities. Yeah, right. That ask ourselves why and what's going on. Right. Where we have to be careful, and, and I'm giving a long answer to your short question. That's right. Um, we have to make sure that we're well defining what critical race theory is today and asking, does it apply? Because critical race theory is saying, we're offering you a way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. And you have to go, well, if I'm a Christian, how does the Bible shape how I understand critical race theory? Yeah. Um, because as soon as you bring into critical race theory, um, the you know, anti-fragile, uh, um, um, was it white fragility, white fragility and, yeah. and, and all these other doctrines, you're redefining families at this point, you're compounding problems. Right. But instead of we saying, for example, what does it look like to have a strong black community? Well, now we have to define what's a black community. And we would say, we really need to look at how do we make strong family, families because that's what's been broke. Yeah, and I would say scripture speaks loudly to that. God has ordained two institutions. One exactly. is the family, and we clearly get that in Genesis 1 and 2, and the other one is the church. Yeah. And so we have to ask ourselves as Christians, if, if God has invested so much time, think about what God's spoken in scripture, um, why aren't we honing in on these areas and, and looking for solutions in these particular areas? What's going on in the home? What's going on in the church? Yeah. And I, I don't know the statistics off my head, but it, the number of homes that are fatherless is quite high, 70%, north of 70%. Yeah. And if we're looking at scripture and saying families matter to God, and then we see that statistic, you, one would want to be like, okay, how do we go about finding solutions to this very real problem? Right. And when we get, when we tie this back into Black Lives Matter, I mean, they're, an, excuse me, anti-patriarchy. Exactly. And they want to take down the very thing that God has ordained. Yeah. And that's where we see a conflict of idea ideas mm -hmm. in play. One is pro-family, one is anti-patriarchy, we'll say it that way. Right. Pro-biblical family and the anti-patriarchy. And that's where I would say one starting point we, I would exhort all of my evangelical brothers and sisters to is where we start off with repentance. Um, I think our in church institutions and especially even the church planting establishment has, has worked in such a way that said, what works, let's do it, let's get numbers, um, where we haven't discipled men well. Yeah, it's about button we, seats. Right. We yeah. haven't strengthened families well. And so if you look at the black community, I think the most endangered person in the black community is the black boy. Mm -hmm. um, he is militarized many times by his sister, by his mother. Um, he is taught when you grow up, you're going to buy your mother a house. He's never taught to be a man. He's taught that the roles are interchangeable because mom will say, I'm your mother and your father. Um, and so by the time he's a teenager, he's not educated well, not cared well, broken emotionally, mentally, and then physically acting out. Mm. Um, and now what will happen is he'll, he'll give birth to many children in many places. Um, he lacks identity. And we have uh, churches to a large extent that have said, you know, because if you're in an urban environment, you can bring women into the church yeah. um, and you can get them there and you can give them hope and you can have all kind of programs. But what do we need more? Do we need a youth ministry or do we need fathers who are taught how to disciple and make disciples of his children? Um, right now, I could go to plenty of churches that will go outside Planned Parenthood and will protest and I give them applause, but they will not go to a prison and say, let's reach out to ex-offenders as they're coming back into the community and let's help them and build them up. Yeah. And so I think that there is a silent majority in the black community that is the black man that has no voice that right now evangelicals have an opportunity, find that man and build him up. Yeah. Um, you know, put effort into discipleship, education, seminaries or Bible schools should, should make ways that uh, bivocational men can come in there and not just those who are called to be pastors, but those who need worldview and can be equipped to be businessmen and so forth. Why hasn't um, happened? 
I would say there's a couple of reasons. What's normative to white evangelicals is not normative to blacks. So, for example, at a very practical level, um, for years I tried to go to uh, Bible schools around Philadelphia. If your classes are from nine to five, I can't go. And yet most liberal seminaries and schools that I know of are very accommodating. They started distance education first. They had weekends. They had evenings, whereas many other conservative schools ended their cohorts. Um, there are some schools I know that are exceptions, but they are exceptions to the rule. Right. And so that that's a, a, another issue that you have there where it's 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 not that kind of reach and train up. And many others who've come into the city over the years, and this is, I think, changing now, but in the past, you plan a church and it's just like missions, but you don't raise up indigenous leaders. Yeah. You you want to get people that you can raise up to serve the church, but not serve the community. It seems like you're talking a lot about contextualization here. Yeah. Like, how do we contextualize absolutely. in light of the context that I'm in and the problems that we see? Right. And so, to your point, like, okay, he's got to work full time, uh, but he wants a seminary degree. Mm -hmm. We got to offer these night classes. We got to create a program in order to educate. Exactly. So that's an important point. Now that we'll get into church planning more, we talk about contextualization yeah. of that. So moving towards solutions here, uh, I've thought mm -hmm. a lot in the last year and a half about the importance of the Imago Dei. Mm -hmm. it's, it goes back to what you've already said so well. Uh, let, let's go back to the beginning. Yeah. Um, explain. Got a thing on your collar. What's that? Yeah, a little ant on your shirt. Uh, that's there typical. We We're oh. in the country, man. There we go. All right. Um, <laughs> really cornfield. Yeah. What, what, what importance does the Imago Dei play when we start moving toward a biblical solution to uh, social issues that exist, lacks of justice that we see? Like, how do we go about uh, a biblical justice beginning with the Imago Dei? That's going to inform all of our standards. Yeah. Um, you can't have a permanent underclass when you consider the Imago Dei, which I think some movements are seeking to create. So in other words, and, and this may sound cocky, in the community I come from, some of the most intelligent men I've ever known were drug dealers who mm. could calculate you know, on a, on a dime in their head, um, could build a business. Crack cocaine was a, a Fortune 500 enterprise. I'm never gonna believe that that type of, of mind is a victim of anything. Um, given the opportunity, given the resources, that person could thrive very well. And so our goal needs to be, because we're made in God's image, meaning we have creativity, we know how to innovate. We have certain things just by way of common grace Yeah, right. right. that if we are given opportunity, we will excel. So I, I'm cocky when it comes to not just the black community, but anybody that comes from the bottom, you usually have what it takes to survive and to thrive if you're given the opportunity. Yeah. If you look throughout history, especially the last 70 years, Whenever somebody tries to help black people, they hurt them. When they leave them alone and say, we're going to make sure it's fair, they thrive. Yeah. And so what we need is fairness and for people to get out the way. Right. If anything, I would say people need to chop, try to stop trying to help us and leave us alone to let us thrive. Mm. Um, in other words, don't abandon us, but don't try to throw everything here. Instead, um, make a way for us. Don't keep raising the bar. Don't say now you can have a, a $15 an hour job at a high school degree level. And then now you got to have a degree for the same job for the same money. It has to be fairness and the outcomes God will take care of. Mm -hmm. I think it, that, that the Imago Dei alone flies in the face of the idea that we need to have equal outcomes. Right. Um, I'm not saying capitalism by far is a solution to anything, but I'm saying socialism is much more dangerous and anti-biblical. Right. Um, so if we look at Imago Dei, it, it's gonna push us to say what causes people to thrive and how do we move all those hindrances out the way so that they can thrive. But it also tells me that we're more alike 
then we are different. Yeah, absolutely. And that's like, um, that, that's something I think more and more about and cause that's beginning to break down barriers and walls. It yeah. is not to say you cease to be black and I cease to be white. Exactly. That's not what I'm saying. It I is can't saying, stop. It is to say if, if you take Genesis one twenty six and 27 at its word, which I do, mm-hmm. there's more that connects us than exactly. divides us. Yeah. And that's where, then you can talk about, you know, okay, in light of that, how do we get to points of how this impacts culture and society? Which yeah. is what you're saying. Yeah. But there's a lot to celebrate in the yeah. meantime, you know, getting there. Absolutely. Like you, you know, you preached our church today. I was very homogenous, very white. Yeah. Um, but you know what? We're more alike than we are different. Mm-hmm. And we serve the same great God that brings right. us together in Christ. Ephesians, read all of Ephesians 1, you know? Yeah, exactly. Or the book of Ephesians. So Imago Day is really important and begin to working toward... Uh, biblical solutions to issues of justice. Foundations are so important. We can't repeat Absolutely. that enough. Yep. Uh, you were talking about the source of something in, the, mm-hmm. in your sermon today. Like yeah. Your source is going to influence so much of what you end up believing. Everything. And how you respond. Yep. So, Imago Dei, let me give a quote to you by Owen Strand. I read in his book on wokeness and Christianity. Mm-hmm. I think it's called Wokeness and Christianity. He says this, and I quote, uh, In Eden, there's just one human race, not many races. Our skin color is part of a beautiful diversity of the God-made world as our numerous elements of our person. So part of what he's saying there is he's, he's saying there's one race, but there's diversity within that one race. Right. How does that land on you in light of you're black, I'm white? Yeah, because I think race as nomenclature is more harmful and dangerous than it is helpful. I think and ethnicity is, is the best substitute there. And that's the most bi- biblical. And most biblical. Absolutely. From Genesis to Revelation. Absolutely. Um, because with race, what's going to end up happening is you're going to lump someone in who doesn't belong there. Because um, if you just say black and you take someone from Philadelphia who's from 60th Street and compare my, my daughter and I drove to Indiana and we saw uh, black folks who we might not have much in common with. Um, they're black, but they got cowboy boots and hats. <laughs> and, and I remember even being in Oklahoma and there were black folks who had Confederate flags on their lawn. Um, and so if, if we would just look at race and we say black, what's going to happen is it, it empowers you to call blacks a monolith. Right. And that's where I say it causes more division, whereas ethnicity is, is much more valid. And I think we need to shift the conversation from race um, to ethnicity. Or culture, and, too. I like that yeah, idea. Like, what's your absolutely cult, everyone culture. Everyone grows up in a culture. Yeah. Philly culture is a lot different than Iowa culture and vice yeah. versa. Contextualization, all that. You don't very, have Culver's in Philly, which is sad and disappointing. Yeah, I'm learning Culver's is amazing. The Butterburger. Uh-huh. I'm going to grab one more of those before I we go back. So, uh, Mago Day is really important. There's more that connects us yeah. than makes us different. Uh, certainly, there are differences because every individual is different. Yeah. You know, our, look at our fingerprints is the most obvious example of that. But moving forward, we see something. We just kind of walk through this biblical theology. Moving forward, mm-hmm. sin. Yeah. And sin begins to impact how people view one another. Yeah. It not only creates that separation between man and God, but all of a sudden, it affects relationships. From a, from a biblical perspective, from a theological perspective, explain how sin is now impacting our view of justice. Sin is impacting our view of justice in many ways. I think um, on one extent, sin always makes us the center of things. And it, 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 
it always removes God. It goes right back to the garden where Adam substitutes himself for God. Um, we, because of sin, we substitute ourselves as the standard and the purveyor of truth when it comes to justice. So we define issues and positions based on where things are and where we want them to be versus where God would want them to be. Yeah, right. But also, even within the context of race, um, now we determine morality based on who is for our particular race. So within the black race, I'll give you an example with the Breonna Taylor case and the lead prosecutor comes out and he reads a statement that number one, they've disproven a lot of things that people said about the Who was black. Yeah, exactly. He was black. Yes. That's what I meant to say. Thank you. And, and they've disproven. Yeah. And this is what, what is so astounding to me though. Everybody assumes, well, he's black. Therefore we're going to get this verdict. And he's saying, based on principles of justice and investigation, um, here's what we found. Here's where people were wrong. And now they're saying he's black, but he's not one of us. He's not for us. So he's black, but he's substandard black now. He's no longer part of the black culture or the black community because he didn't give us what we deem to be appropriate. Whereas biblically, we should be evaluating, was he truthful? We didn't ask if he was truthful. We asked if he was for us. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, it's a warped sense of justice that demeans and, and strips the dignity away from this man who, as far as we know, did his job. And we should applaud that. Yeah. Any other time we would say, we're happy we have another black lawyer. You know, that was always the thing we said. The justice system would be different if we had black judges, black lawyers. Here's an attorney who is the highest prosecutor in the office who's saying, listen, we, we labored. I feel for the family. My condolences to them. And yet here is here is what has happened. And instantly he's discredited. And that is I think that is a picture of how sin has distorted and continues to distort um, justice and what reconciliation even looks like. Because now reconciliation in in much of the national conversation is if you're for me or you're guilty about being you, you're acceptable. If you're not, then you're just an oppressor. Um, I'm an Uncle Tom. You're a white supremacist. And so before we even say anything, because we don't agree, we're often we're wrong. Mm -hmm. We're dehumanized. Right. And that's what sin has done. I think it strips that Imago day from, from everybody. And so moving forward, as you think, again, through biblical theology lens here, um, God does a great thing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we go to Galatians 3. Let me just read this passage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. It's talking about the law here. Mm-hmm. Uh, For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God uh, through faith. For as many of you are baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Therefore, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Mm-hmm. There's neither slave or free. There's neither male or female, but you're all one in Christ. Now, we have some ethnic categories there, Jew and Greek. Yeah. Um, obviously, some gender categories, male and female, and slave and free. What Paul is doing is that these categories don't necessarily cease to exist, mm-hmm. but the barriers that have been created yeah. because of these you know, ethnicities, for, exa- ethnicities, excuse me, for example, mm-hmm. those are broken down. Yeah. And now we're all one in Christ. Right. And that's the beauty of the gospel in terms of moving toward gospel solutions. Mm-hmm. Jesus has done something greater than what, much greater than what CRT could ever possibly do. Absolutely. Or any, any you know, CRT, critical race theory, intersectionality, that's going to go away. Right. In 20 years from now, 40 years from now, 100 years from now, if Jesus doesn't come back, guess what? There's going to be something, something else. <laughs> There's going to be something else. Amen. And Jesus is still a, a better solution. That's right. So help us to apply a gospel-centered solution to issues of justice? I think first thing is we have to, for all of us, we have to mind our tongue and watch our rhetoric. Um, I think one of the hard things for black people when it comes to racial reconciliation is that now people call out wrong. They say, you shouldn't call anything the black church or it shouldn't be this type of tradition or that. 
and a lot of times whites don't acknowledge how things got that way, how they're yeah. how, where Richard Allen came from, why he couldn't be ordained in a white church. And so it's like we're we're pushing. You need to get over it. And too often we're telling people to get over it, whereas we need to listen as a, as a first step. Um, and I want to make sure I don't go completely off topic, but now we need to wrestle with things within bounds. I think the veneer is off and we all have different positions where we need to lovingly engage in dialogue. Yeah. And I think what's going to happen is it's just like within a marriage. Um, you know, you like it 60 degrees at night. She likes it 70 degrees. And eventually you come to 76 isn't bad. Um, <laughs> you know, something like that. And I think that's where we need to get. We need to play within the rules of not because I think people are pushing for love Jesus. Therefore, be quiet. And we can't. Yeah. We have to have engagement and discussion um, within the bounds of the gospel and learn to love one another and learn to listen to other people. And then from there say, no matter, I'm not going to give up on you as my brother, even though we differ and I'm not going to put you down. Um, This is something we we needed to repent for as Christians. Stop putting people on Twitter um, or Instagram without emailing that person. Yeah. You know, the, the Christian world is a small world and the reformed community is a small community. Small, yeah, yeah. We need to talk to one another. That culture and um, sub subculture. Right. You know? We need to call out the sin of putting somebody out there publicly who you've never even talked to right. directly about it. And you know this person, you can reach out to them. So I think there we need to have those discussions to not so much say, I'm not advocating for a narcissism. You need to understand my my pain. But privately, the two of us. I want you to understand where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. You understand mm-hmm. um, where I understand where you're coming from, and from there begin to dialogue on biblical solutions. But second to that, we have too many people that are biblically illiterate. Yeah, that's a good point. Before, and I the, think that transcends with the black church, white church. Absolutely, you know, just... I, I got happy when the social justice this thing started because people were never studying. Old Testament. They were never trying to look at the law and look (laughs) at the application thereof. So we're in this, you know, this new larval stage where we're saying, hey, look what Leviticus says and look what Amos says. And we're looking at it, but we're misapplying it. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so now we have to say biblically, what is this? Whether you want to pull out a sermon series or study the books, at least get the theology right. And because I think the heart is there and the energy is there. But a lot of most basic Christians at the most basic level are, are not exegeting scriptures correctly. And one thing we need to publicly call out aggressively is when you have leaders. I, I know one pastor who has a national platform, but um, totally exegeted, you know, I think it was Amos wrong and read into the text. Yeah, I know several ex- for a social justice end. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so we need to call it out and deal with that because there's yeah. a danger inherent to that. Right. We need to say, let's wrestle with what is justice, but we need to exegete what is biblical justice. Yeah. The way that, the way that I've thought about it is like we have to sometimes disconnect ideas from the people. Yeah. Um, let's face it. You and I are not speaking anything that hasn't already been spoken at some point by someone else. Right. And uh, we need to, we can still honor a person who we disagree with and yet talk about an idea. Right. And then I think that helps take the emotion, some of the emotion away. Yeah. And helps us to wrestle with, okay, what is it? Where's this idea? Where is it coming from? It doesn't make sense. Is it biblical? Right. And then that's how I've gone about engagement. Mm -hmm. You know, over the last year and a half, we've talked a lot about, and there's, we haven't agreed on everything. Right. As we have engaged in them. When we disagree, I'm not like, oh, Eric, how come? Right. That guy. Well, no. How did he get to this conclusion? Yeah. What is he really saying? you know, kind of separating you from those particular words for the sake of ongoing dialogue. And also keep in mind, 
sometimes when we're looking for solutions, we're looking for solutions to the national dialogue. Yeah. When in reality, what God has called us to do is to do justice at our local level. Right. And so um, it might be hard for me to convince you on a position of George Floyd, but it wouldn't be hard for me to come to um, Waukee and say, here's the issues here. Here's what's happening how do you deploy biblical justice here? How do you train your people for that? Um, you know, Kevin DeYoung in his book talks about moral proximity and, and those we have a commitment to right where we are or in other parts That's of the world. It's a really world. good category. Yeah, and he says, you know, if there's a uh, typhoon in Cambodia, I might be hurt by it, but I would move differently if my brother is in Cambodia. Right. And so we, we need to think about that principle of moral proximity because we have Christians who are burning out, trying to keep up with a dialogue that they have no business being a part of. Right. You can you can look, you can talk, you can tweet. But what are you doing to your neighbor right next to you? Mm. And it is easier to start with, I'm going to do justice to those around me and yeah, figure out good. what that is. We've got to start mastering the the minor stuff and leave the majors to here's what denominations will talk about. Here's what together for the gospel will talk about. Why don't we just deal with what our local church will do? Mm. And that's a great starting place because we may not fix stuff right away, but we can start doing justice. That's a really good point. I even talk about, you know, earlier about what's going on in Afghanistan right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we certainly want to pray for that situation because it's horrific. But right. it seems like from all accounts, it's just like not a good situation. Right. But... You know, there's really nothing I can do about that. That's right. I can pray. And okay. I've called our church to pray. I wrote a blog post and sent it out to everyone. I'm like, please pray. Here's how you can pray. Uh, but there's practical things I can do in my community. Yeah. Like talk about being the hands and feet of Christ and moving towards solutions toward biblical justice. Mm -hmm. There's things we can do, not just behind the That's keyboard right. and tweet things to our blog. Things we must do. Things we must do. Yes. Or else we're sinning. Yeah, exactly. And we've got to do. And, and Taking care of the orphan and the widow, you know. Exactly. Yeah. And and a lot of times we don't ask the question, who are the least of these around me? Um, one thing we need to care for, you know, you read Acts 13, and I always point to that. Paul and Barnabas are worshiping the Lord and fasting, and the Lord gives direction on what to do. It starts with getting worship right, getting truth right, mm -hmm. and then we leave room for God to direct us. Too yeah, it's often. That, it's that foundation we're talking about. Exactly. Get that foundation right. You cannot be the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, there are certain things that are so clear in God's word that we should be doing when it comes to justice, justice loving our spouse, loving our neighbor, um, protecting the unborn. Those are a given. Matter of fact, if we were doing that right, we would be more outraged that the majority of abortions are black babies. Yeah. Every day we're, we're destroying. It's like 9-11 every day when you look at the numbers. But anyway, I digress. Yeah. But if we're getting there, we should be so busy with local matters. Or sometimes you don't have time for Twitter. Yeah. We're, and if we're not doing that, we need to repent of that first, because the biggest issue here I see is that we're playing the Holy Spirit. Yeah. We're not having him direct us because we already know the direction. And now we want God to bless our mess and come be a part of it. And that's sacrilege. Yeah. It's so funny. We want to be Jesus to people. We want to be the Holy Spirit to people. Yeah, it's like, exactly. Knock it off. Right. <laughs> knock it exactly. off. Exactly. To some extent, you have to ask when it comes to America, um, maybe we've invited God out of our church plants. Um, out of our worship because we've planned it out so well and we have the cookie cutter formula and I know this is a church planning discussion but even personally as a disciple we know who we want to help so much so that God can't send us um, it's like Peter being called to 
go to Paul. And it's just like, nah, <laughs> I don't want to do that. I don't want to deal with the Gentiles, you know, and God's saying, no, 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 they're clean. Like, don't don't call what I've called clean, unclean. Yeah. But many days we do that within yeah, the, the church. Story of Cornelius and Acts 10, yeah. Exactly. And those are things we need to take a step back and say, maybe I'm part of the problem because I tweet and talk so much. I listen to so many podcasts, read so many books. I haven't done anything. <laughs> yeah. What is your what is your resume in the kingdom? What do you seek to do? What is your holy ambition? Get about that and then God will reveal more as you go. Yeah. And maybe somebody else is called to Afghanistan and someone else is called to northern New York or Montreal where there are all issues. Yeah. But we don't know because we're not listening. Right. Wow, that's really good. Yeah. Any final thoughts for me? Um, mm. last time I checked, I I don't live in North, I don't live in North Philly, South yeah. Philly or West Philly. Although I got a lot of friends. But I think a lot about justice. I'm mm-hmm. outraged by the, by the crime that is going on, especially if you've kept me updated mm-hmm. on what's going on in the streets of Philly. Um, what would you say to the, the white Sean Powers living in rural, not rural, Des Moines not rural, but Iowa? I'll put it in a tweet. <laughs> Make it digestible for idiots like me, please. <laughs> I say to white Sean, um, be more Christian than you are white. And I'll labor to be more Christian than I am black mm. and let God do the rest. And, and from there, best practical advice I can get. That is fantastic. Yeah. Let me end with this sweet, mm. sweet passage from Revelation 7. Mm-hmm. It's yes. one you know. It's one I know. And this is, this is what we can practice now as we look toward eternity. Mm-hmm. In this, I looked up and behold, a great multitude that one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, mm-hmm. standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne mm. and to the Lamb. To the Lamb. That's what we have to look forward to. And that's what we can practice now Amen. as brothers in Christ. That's right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Like I said, there's going to be another Cornfield Theology podcast with Eric here on church mm-hmm. planning. So please check that out. And uh, please check out any of the other. Oh, I'm really bad at this part, man. This is where Logan really helps me. Check us okay. out on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, like, click, share. I don't know. Comment. Yeah, you're not on TikTok. Do stuff. If you follow the TikTok. You don't, I'm not on TikTok. I'm sorry. Uh, you can go to cornfieldtheology.com if you want to receive the latest blog. You can just go to the bottom of the, of the page and you can just sign up. You put your email address in. So there's ways to connect with us. But until next time, God bless and peace out. Bye. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.